Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. For this episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, Guy Lodge. Welcome, Guy. Oh, good to be back. We keep meeting at the best film festival. Yes, absolutely. I guess the last time we chatted was at Venice. And I think we talked about... Well, one of the things I remember talking about was the French uh, film by Audrey Duane. Yes, yeah, which, you know, went on to do pretty well for itself. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, how has the festival been for you so far? I mean, as, as a festival, it's been very quiet for Berlin. You know, it's usually, you know, a very busy, kind of hectic, crowded festival. And obviously, in its kind of COVID edition, this is the first time it's happened in person since you know the beginning of it all and you know they've made it happen and they've made it work but it is you know it's a much mellower quieter experience than usual and i'm kind of enjoying that because it's you know there's less kind of chaos and more time to focus on the movies which i think have been you know by and large very good yeah no it's yeah it's not a bad thing to have uh, a a bit of a saner pace and and not so much of the feeling you're in the middle of a beehive at any given time but uh, one film, which I guess in that regard is, is good to highlight, because it might be the sort of film that could get kind of lost yeah. in a much more frenetic uh, setting, and that is a film in Encounters, a Japanese film called Small, Slow, But Steady. Uh, and I think that was, that was one of the films you, you're a fan of. Yes, I, possibly my favorite thing I've seen here so far, actually. And I mean, I think the Encounters section, which is still pretty new at Berlin, it's mm-hmm. sort of kind of their equivalent, I guess, of Cannes' Uncertain Regard mm. and section, like films that aren't quite uh, at, don't quite have the profile of competition films, but are also, you know, by, in some cases, very significant directors mm-hmm. or very kind of interesting up-and-coming filmmakers. And uh, this one by a Japanese filmmaker called Shomiake, who is a new name to me, um, yeah. and the film was not uh, really on my radar at all. It was just kind of on my assignment list, and I went in one morning to check it out, and it, it really snuck up on me because it's such a... It's tempting to call it, like, the most whispery boxing movie ever made. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, you think of boxing movies as these sort of, you know, brutal, gritty kind of pummeling things, and this is... It's so quiet and so delicate and, and so mm-hmm. lovely about a, a young deaf woman uh, who turns pro-boxer... Um, and her kind of struggles with, you know, kind of climbing the ladder in, in that regard, but also the pandemic caused kind of a financial problems of the boxing gym where she trains and works out and the whole kind of ecosystem that supports that industry. And it's a, it's a completely new angle on the sport that I've, I've never seen before. And, you know, her disability as well as, a, you know, another kind of fresh detail there but it's not actually the the defining characteristic mm. of the film uh, and I think it's I think it's really special yeah I thought it was too and I mean the style of it is also it's not the sort of staccato or crescendos you might expect mm. in, in a boxing film but it is rhythmic mm. in a very nice way and you know there are a couple of scenes where she's practicing I'm going to use the wrong terms but whatever they're called like where one person is holding up something that you're yeah. hitting. <laughs> and, uh, and it's beautiful, the rhythm. It's, it's like a little hand song, I feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's really nice. And I think just you're following that character's rhythm throughout, throughout the film mm-hmm. in a way. And I like that she has a real private you know, interiority and that she seems really to be uh, deciding when to reveal herself. Yeah. And it's in Tokyo, but it's in a neighborhood of Tokyo. I guess that's another thing 
that is, you know, not one of the three places you see on screen, exactly, maybe. Yeah. Not that I know Tokyo intimately, but even I can look at this and say, oh, that's like a turnpike. Exactly. Or, you know, that's yeah. like an overhead roadway. She trains, you know, on her personal training uh, regimen just when she's out of the gym. She goes to this, like, grassy knoll next, in, no one would go to. Yeah. And she's just there, and that's, that's sort of her place. Yeah, so much of it takes place around the kind of waterways and motorways mm. of what's presumably kind of outer or suburban Tokyo. And, and that kind of ties into obviously the, you know, the kind of fringe uh, nature of, of the mm. whole enterprise. This isn't, you know, the, the big moneyed heart of, you know, Japanese boxing, clearly. It's, right. you know, it's, it's an independent endeavor where they're, you know, really struggling to stay afloat. Yeah, that's uh, small, slow, but steady. A title I find hard to remember, yeah. I must admit. I'm constantly <laughs> substituting other S words in yeah. there and, uh, you know, uh, or getting the order wrong. Um, but, you know, it is actually quite, a, quite an apt description of the film as well. So yeah. I see where they went with and, that. And you mentioned that the Japanese title, I think, is different. It yes, the Japanese title was uh, just, I think, the character's name, which is Keiko. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she kind of, you know, deserves to be, I think, yeah. you know, the, the, the eponymous character. Maybe they the can compromise and it'll yeah. be Keiko, colon. Small, slow, <laughs> small, but steady. steady. Yeah. So that's a highlight of not just encounters, but the festival, to be yeah. fair. But, uh, you know, obviously people are curious about two or three of the, the bigger titles yeah. in the festival. And one of those was also a highlight for you, and that's the Claire Denis film. Yes, and I mean, I, I admit to some bias, you know, Claire Denis is almost always going to be a highlight for me because she's about my favorite working filmmaker. And, you know, so I came to this with, with very high expectations and they were met in one sense, but I was still surprised. It, mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it, it is something of a, a departure for her mm -hmm. into, um, you know, she's working with Juliette Binoche again from Let the Sunshine In and with the same writer, uh, yes. Let the Sunshine In, based on one of her novels. So you think, you know, it's going to be kind of another in that mold. And it kind of is in that it's a relationship kind of story, but it's fully into kind of emotionally abrasive mm. um, kind of marital drama, basically. It's, it, in yeah. one sense, it's quite a sort of old fashioned kind of knockabout French domestic piece. Yeah. Um, but she brings real kind of color and social interest to it. Um, and Binoche, again, just clearly thrives under, mm -hmm. under her touch. And Vincent Landon as her, as her partner is, is also extraordinary. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, Juliette Binoche, I don't know, she's very vulnerable in Let the yeah. Sunshine In. And here she is again in a different way and kind of in a more, a more tragic way. Yeah. Uh, or, or differently tragic, I guess, but the, the first one's a comedy. This is more overtly yeah. like a tragedy where she is basically happy with Vincent Lindon and then, you know, a, a guy from the past comes in and just completely mesmerizes her yeah. again. And derails her. And derails her. Uh, and then rails her. Uh, <laughs> um, and the thing is, when you write it down as a yes, story, it sounds exactly. like nothing. You know, yeah. it's, it's just it looks like the most kind of generic kind of love triangle. Yeah. And, and you think it's a film we've seen a hundred times before. Why is Claire Denis making this? Um, and yet there is something interesting and unexpected and kind of new feeling about mm. it because it's so kind of amoral in, its, in how it negotiates this, you know, all, all the points of this love triangle and kind of who's in the right and who's in the wrong. It's not actually very interested in that. Right. It's, it's just interested in how they how they all individually feel about it. 
Yeah, that's true. It's just sort of watching what the casualties are going yeah. <laughs> to be. I think it's kind of nice that you don't know going in exactly how it's going to play out. But yeah. I think no one emerges unscathed. Yeah. And there's so much kind of interesting backstory that, you know, she really makes you work to kind of unpack it. She, a lot of it isn't written yeah. in. You have to kind of assume and surmise and guess. I mean, Lance yeah. Landon's character, you know, has done time in prison. And, right. you know, and, and there's kind of family history on both. So they both have children that, you know, they're clearly, you know, issues there that we haven't, mm -hmm. that we aren't entirely party to, but it affects their current situation. And so it's, we have to kind of piece it all together for ourselves. And I love that she trusts us to do that. Yeah. And she is also doing it without the kind of usual kind of slipstream uh, editing scheme or not usual, but just yeah. one that she uses frequently. Yeah. I am a huge fan of Claire Denis as well. And, and I just come to appreciate when she's choosing to do this instead of that. Yeah. Sometimes I think that's that's the sign of of a filmmaker, you know, that you can really appreciate is that when those choices met, when the choice to do the ordinary thing yeah. is interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's fire. Another title conundrum there. Yes, um, it seems to have about three <laughs> titles because in some, I think in the U.S. where it's been uh, bought by IFC, I think yes. they're kind mm -hmm. of marketing it as fire. But it's just in fire. some English language territories, it's called Both Sides of the Blade, which I blade, don't yeah. really kind of understand the relevance of. And then the French title is something different entirely. Mul multiple disguises. So Both Sides of the Blade is yeah. not a saying I'm not familiar with or something? I don't think, it feels like an odd translation, like doesn't it? Except same. it's not a translation. Yeah. Maybe it's something from the novel, I don't know. Right, um, yeah. That's an interesting thing to think about is, since you, you, you mentioned that, it's the same uh, novelist, screenwriter, mm. she, she worked on with uh, Let the Sunshine In. Well, I, I do think there is a kind of common thread of a fixation on female desire in both of them, yeah. um, and a very sympathetic, but also quite kind of harsh portrait of it. It's not, mm. um, it's quite visceral and, and quite, yeah. quite brutal, and people get hurt, you know. Um, yeah. And even though Let the Sunshine In was comedy there was that kind of i think there were those emotional stakes in this as well yeah and she's got another one coming up this yeah. year as well and another english language one with i think margaret qualley and joe Alwyn. so that promises to be something different entirely again that's yeah cool. another one to to look forward to so yeah that's fire uh, i'm just going to call it fire because i kind of like it and it's yeah. kind of what you could you know it's the movie is kind of raw yeah. <laughs> you know so i think that fits and Another big film from an, another very identifiable auteur, uh, Peter Strickland, uh, yes. Flux Gourmet. Yeah. And this one you also liked a lot, yeah? I did. And <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it seems to be quite divisive, and I'm not at all surprised because it is a, <laughs> um, it, it, it is a very wild proposition, uh, even, even by the standards of his, of his previous work. Yeah. It's kind of almost like a remix of all his kind of fixations from, mm. from his previous work, you know, there's a, and again, his, his kind of obsession with audio, like comes to mm -hmm. the fore here. I mean, I'm not even, how do you even give a kind of one line elevator pitch <laughs> of what this, yeah. what this film is about? It's, it's a, a kind of performance art academy. It's set in a performance art academy for specifically food-related audio performance, is that fair to say? Run by... Uh, <laughs> one woman. Well, run by one by woman. insane woman <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, and, and her even more insane entourage and yeah. <laughs> attended seemingly by 
one crew or band of uh, you know very dissenting gourmet audio artists. I mean, it, it's already sounding kind of impossible to yeah. <laughs> yeah. explain. But and 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 you know, and the journalist documenting this whole thing for you know, we can't imagine who because <laughs> you know, who are the readers for this? But then I feel it's kind of Strickland kind of satirizing the uh, the kind of inaccessibility of his own work as you know yeah there's a kind of invisible audience oh, you know unspoken in the film itself and as we're watching you're like who is he making this for as well it's, right. it's sort of entirely for himself i think yeah it is funny and it's i mean it's sort of it's a feature about an avant-garde group but sort of written in the way like it would be a feature following around like a pop star in a exactly, way exactly yeah because there's this voiceover that the journalist is doing throughout which is kind of chronicling their ups and downs uh, of the group and just his own multiple neuroses, yeah, and so linked like neuroses. Vox flux gourmet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's a nonsense on the face of it, but it's so witty and so kind of formally kind of spry and playful and just every kind of little incidental detail of it, you know, made me laugh. I mean, Gwendolyn Christie, who plays the kind of principal of this bizarre academy, I mean, just her every line reading, her every outfit, everything is kind of played for completely... <laughs> deadpan absurd comedy yeah. and, I mean, and it, it got me every time yeah and the group dynamics are they i mean it could be like a, a semi-mockumentary about you know intraband turmoil yeah. although at the same time being you know not a totally inaccurate picture of the kind of roles in some yeah. bands about creative leadership and how that can also be like cruelly enforced yeah. that stuff is not totally off the mark but it, yeah it is it is funny how that plays out and they also give you snippets of the performances themselves yes which are you know uniformly hilarious <laughs> and you know unless we make this sound incredibly kind of obscure and highbrow which it is in a sense but it's also incredibly scatological i mean there are yeah. so many gags you know based on bodily functions that um <laughs> yeah just, you know it, it so it, it it runs the highbrow to lowbrow spectrum so kind of completely and exuberantly it's 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 a complete you know, one-off. There, there really is nothing else like it. Yeah, except one of his, except like Barbarian Sound yeah. Studio, maybe or something, something of his own from his own back catalog. I mean, the one thing I'll say is that it does like illuminate something about his style. That I think he writes and films these stories that are odd and funny, but he definitely keeps the tone like below, like uproarious or something. Yes, he's always. I don't even know if underplaying is the word. There's just, there's something so hapless about yeah. the way he shoots these things. So it's never like, or I mean, it can be laugh out loud, but yeah. weird things can be happening and it, you're not even, it's not even being totally commented on. Yeah. Yeah. It's not unintentionally funny, but he still takes it very seriously. Yeah. I think, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. Which is a tricky balance to strike. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's uh, Flux Gourmet, uh, Peter Strickland's uh, latest audiophile nightmare. <laughs> I think Encounters has actually been the more interesting section this year. Yeah, I might have to agree, agree with that since I, I've been following my gut and it's been going to the Encounters more often than at competition. Now, another movie I really want to talk about, just almost to make sense of it, uh, it's strange in a completely different way, mm. um, and it's also from Encounters, it is called Brother in Every Inch. Yes, it's from a Russian director, uh, also new to me, mm. Alexander uh, Zolotukin. And yes, I mean, yeah, weird titles are the, are the theme of 
this year's festival. And this one sounds particularly like <laughs> someone thought that this was a sort of English idiom that, yeah. uh, that somehow got mangled through Google Translate about kind of four <laughs> times. But it is a really interesting and I, I found kind of oddly rather moving film that you might kind of get if, if you imagine like if Alexander Sokharov, who is kind of credited as a, as a mentor and influence mm-hmm. on this project, uh, you know, if he decided to make Top Gun, uh, you, you would <laughs> get right. something around, you know, around where this film lands, uh, which is two young brothers at a uh, Russian flight academy, both training to be uh, fighter pilots and with very kind of different consequences mm-hmm. for both of them. One turns out to be more kind of naturally suited to the, to the pressure and, and conflict of than the other but they turn out to be kind of so inseparable that that difference is, is very difficult for them and yeah. for their instructors to negotiate. And it's this really intensive bond that kind of seems to go beyond kind of family and, and almost into this kind of fixation on each other, yeah. you know, that, that drives this otherwise quite slight narrative. There's not, you know, a whole right. lot of incidents in the film. It's, it's just following this the trajectory of this relationship until it kind of reaches a breaking point mm-hmm. but it's it's very poised and precise in its craft mm-hmm. it's shot in this very sort of tight uh, academy yeah. ratio you know down to the kind of curved corners of the screen which was an yeah. affectation that i wasn't really expecting and <laughs> was wondering what the kind of what the reference point for it was because mm. it doesn't feel particularly throwback it feels very quite a kind of stark contemporary film as well yeah that's interesting see for me for some reason i mean probably just like in a simple-minded way i'm still a little cued and i see a boxy frame for like delzhenko or something like that you know in my mind immediately goes back so consequently not consequently but like also just because of the subject matter because as you say you know in some ways it's it's a very slight story and it's an almost I had this weird feeling when the movie started. I was like, oh, crap. Did I just sit down in like a propaganda film? Yeah. Because there's a way in which also if you describe this movie on paper that it could be just like, here are our Russian fighter jets and here's our cadets, you know, and they're taking their shirts off and they're goofing around and everyone's having like a grand old time. Um, Yeah. And doing their kind of basic training. Basic training. And they're like young and innocent and they are they are russia you know this yeah. is this is, this is a russia's russian youth. they all kind of look handsome and perfect exactly and, uh, like, yeah but there's something so kind of dysfunctional at the core of it yeah that you feel you know the film is must be aware of that because it can't yeah you know, it, it, you wouldn't make a film about a relationship this kind of strange and intense and and then plan to use that to sort of you know to sell the you know, the military experience, yeah. but it, as you say, it is working from from both those ends and 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 meeting somewhere very surprisingly in the middle. Both sides of the blade, you might say. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's it's just, and a lot of their exchanges are basically wordless or yeah. murmured, sometimes so low that you can't even hear yeah. it. And this is like in and around uh, this, you know, academy. I mean, that sounds grand. It really just looks mm. like a airstrip, a dorm, and like some place in the woods they drive to sometimes it's weirdly uh, mesmerizing and I kept on just toggling between like is this really corny or like really enigmatic and interesting yeah but ultimately at the end it's definitely the intensity wins out it feels significant almost to the extent where you feel like did he get away with something here yeah. <laughs> and I guess if I remember the biography correctly he 
was a pilot, I think. Oh, I didn't realize that, actually. I, th- I don't yeah. know. I thought um, I read it that It does somewhere. feel, you know, it, it, it does feel like it really knows its scene, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's because, you know, while we were talking about the macho muscularity of it all, mm. it, it doesn't feel that romanticized. Um, I mean, as you say, the setting is so kind of desolate. You know, it's all kind of gray skies and, yeah. you know, scrubby grassland and, and not much else. And, and then just, you know, when they're in the air. And the flight scene's actually very impressively yeah. rendered on what was presumably a very low budget. Yeah. Um, it does feel quite transporting. Yeah, yeah. And, and the flight scenes, I'm glad you mentioned those. Uh, they look as if you were shooting through the cockpit sometimes. Yeah. Like, the, you know, you can see, like, rain. They go through a storm. Like, like a, is a big part yeah. <laughs> of that, one of those sequences. Um, so that feels even... Uh, grittier um, and then one other thing I didn't mention did we mention that they're twin brothers like identical twin yes, brothers yeah um, yeah you, you know there are many kind of scenes where I was actually I'd you know I'd got their names and their personality types down because yeah. one is clearly the, the kind of older one of the mm-hmm. twins and the more protective one but yeah even so they sometimes seem to kind of swap personalities from yeah. scene to scene which is very um you're very disorienting. Yeah, it, it was eerie. It's the sort of movie where, like, at the end, are you just going to learn that it was, like, one guy <laughs> hallucinating or something? Yeah. Um, which is what, I guess, movies have trained us <laughs> to suspect a little bit. But, yeah, I'm very glad that I, I went to see that, um, despite my initial suspicion that I was somehow complicit. So that's uh, Brother in Every Inch. And this one I might hand off to you because I have not seen it yet, but I was very intrigued. I, th- I think you were still figuring out your reaction to it. Yes, yeah. Um, um, and that is a film called Robe of Gems. Yes, and this one is in the main competition, mm. but it's a debut feature, which is, you know, that's quite, oh, a, yeah. you know, quite an achievement to get in kind of with your very you know, first time at mm. that. And it's a director, uh, Natalia Lopez Gallardo from Mexico. Oh, uh-huh. um, and she's best known as Carlos Regada's editor from, mm-hmm. you know, from a number of his previous films. I think she's also worked with Lisandro Alonso and Amata Escalante. So, you know, she is, yeah. it may be her debut, but she is not new on the scene. And, and it shows in the film because it has a real kind of formal bravado and confidence uh. that uh, pulled me in even when the sort of storytelling got a bit kind of murky and I was sort of kind mm. of lost in the, in, in, in the details of it because it's, it's a, quite a saga. It's a sort of mm. big, violent kind of criminal tapestry set in rural Mexico beginning with a family that moves back into the the kind of matriarch's kind of household and reconnects with their longtime domestic worker. So mm. kind of shades of the kind of class conflicts as well that we saw in, you know, mm. to very different effects in films like Roma and oh, uh, yeah. the Chamber Maid. But then someone disappears and there's a lot of police corruption afoot. And I can't even sort of, I don't even want to sort of detail it all because it all gets very very dark and very tortured, but there's a lot going on in it. And I was just incredibly impressed by the compositional mm. elegance of this whole thing, even when sort of really dynamic, horrible things are happening on the screen. I mean, mm. she holds a real nerve and the camera is so perfectly and precisely placed kind of as, as, as she observes everything. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's from what I've seen in, in competition, and I haven't seen everything so far, but. I think it's the most compelling and, and unexpected mm. advance by a filmmaker that, that I've seen. And I think she's, she's really going to be one to watch. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, Robe of Gems. Um, yeah. And I, I was going to wrap up, but then I realized that, that you did mention one other movie, A-E-I-O-U. Yes, another <laughs> competition film yeah. uh, from a, 
a German filmmaker, and the German competition films can be a bit of a mixed bag at mm. Berlin sometimes. Uh, but I was quite taken with this one. It's a filmmaker called Nicolette Krevitz, who had a film at Sundance about six years ago called Wild. That was a, a really kind of weird, subversive oh. love story between yeah. a woman and a wolf. Uh, and I'll, uh -huh. I'll leave it there. And, and but it, you know, it got. It got pretty hairy uh, in many <laughs> senses. And this is a very different kind of exploration of, of unconventional female desire centered on a middle-aged, I'd say 50-something actress who is commissioned to be a speech therapist for a teenage kind of drama student mm. who has kind of a host of troubled delinquent issues. And what begins as a slightly motherly relationship evolves into something romantic and then the film pivots into a wild escapist fantasy caper mm. as they leave behind the, the shackles of Berlin and head mm. for, for the, the French Riviera on a kind of mad criminal dash. It's, it's a very German idea of a romantic comedy. Um, <laughs> and I w I'm not sure if I was laughing a whole lot, but I was kind of caught up in its flights of fancy. And, mm. and it, even as the kind of genre kind of shifts you know, way across the map, kind of in, in a very short space of time. I think Nicolette Krebitz kind of holds it together. Mm. It does feel like a sort of consistent vision. I'm not sure if it will travel much or if it will kind of stay in, you know, stay largely on home turf, but mm. I, I hope it does because it's, I think she's got a, a really fresh voice. Mm. That's interesting. I, I was just thinking of, I guess last year there was a popular German romantic comedy, I'm Your Man was. Yes. This is a A-E-I-O-U. And uh, I think we can bring it in for a landing there, just to uh, borrow the theme of the Russian Top Gun, because there are still a few days left in the festival and plenty yeah, more to see. Someone to catch up on still, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. There's definitely stuff, which they've done a pretty good job in like scheduling so that you can do yeah. that, even with the kind of compressed time frame. All right, Guy, thank you as always oh, for coming pleasure. on. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.